Ben. Hi, this is Ben speaking with his voice. I'm really sorry I can't be taking part in the podo this week. Unfortunately, I've been dramatically called away to the shining city of Stoke-on-Trent. It's his loss, really. I can't tell you how much I enjoy talking to the inspirational, talented crime writer extraordinaire, her words, in part one of a two-part series. It gives me great pleasure and enthusiasm and excitement uh, to introduce our guest this week, who is Plymouth crime writer Louise Charland, who has been talking to Victoria. I think it was, it must have been 2015, because I think I got the publishing deal in 2016. So it was really interesting. I was always a kind of a suburban housewife. I'm originally from Canada. My husband's in the British Navy. I met him in Toronto and then moved to the UK. Oh, that was the I sailor. Was, that was yeah, the oh, sailor yeah. that you married. For my sins, And I worked in education. I kind of worked in the library services and a TA. And then I kind of worked in higher education. And then I got a job working with homeless people. It was a real shift. Uh, it was kind of a work and learning coach to help people that experience homelessness into work, which is really interesting. So I worked with um, ex-offender, I mean, literally people that would show up at the door with a blue bag that they have and they're given when they leave Dartmoor prison with all their possessions and nowhere to go, no food, nothing. And um, worked with people in recovery and active addiction, people with complex mental health issues. And that was all part of the same work yeah. that you were doing. That's so an working, awful lot to take on, um, isn't it? It was interesting because I sort of came from a kind of safe, slightly secure background, but not really. I mean, my, you know, I, I was like, I guess, and I, this is not to diminish any suburban housewives because I have the utmost respect for them having, and particularly service wives. Um, but I, it was for Crisis UK, which is an amazing charity. And so I was working with a smaller charity in Plymouth and just supporting people into work. And it was really, really, really interesting. And uh, then I happened to buy a big issue from a vendor in Plymouth and I saw the competition and I don't buy the big issue, big issue every month, but it happened to be in there. And I, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. And I, Entered it in the March, I think. It was either 2015 or 2016. And then I forgot about it. And I always tell the story to... <laughs> People are sitting there having scratched days off on their calendar. <laughs> well, I'm not, honestly, I'm not, I am, the, the story I tell everybody is, for particularly any writers listening, on the Monday, I had my 12th rejection for this book from an agent and on the Friday I had an email from Avon Books saying I'd wanted to a big deal with them through this competition. That's so, wonderful that's yeah. so lovely. But you just have to you have to work hard and you have to kind mm. of listen to people and develop but you also have to believe in what you're doing. But you um, went to you a uh, 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 quite renowned university. I did. UEA type of thing. <laughs> yeah, that was a long distance uh, MA in crime writing, okay. and I, I've always wanted to do an MA. And then postgraduate student loans came into being, 
I thought, oh, well, I'm so old, I'll never pay it back anyway, so I'll do it. <laughs> but it was, so we went up to Norwich um, three times a year and we did workshops and things. So it was one of those things where, I mean, I'm not sure an MA is for everybody, but it's one of those things that starts putting you kind of mentally in a category that you think, oh, I can be a professional or I'm working with other professionals. Um, but this book was written before I started the MA. So I'd worked on the book called The Lake, which won the competition, oh God, years and years and years on and off. Um, and I submitted that. So- Have was... you always written? That's probably what everybody asks Well, you. I've always read. I think I started, so I'm in my fifties now. So I um, was writing short stories when my kids were, so in my twenties, I started writing and I had kind of little bits of success here and there. And then in 2010, I won the Woman in Home magazine short story competition. I thought, oh, I can make it. I can, maybe I can make a living at this. Ha <laughs> ha. And um, I thought, if you're going to make a living, really, you have to write novels. You know, there are okay. some exceptional short story writers like Alice Munro, who can do that, and even Carol Shields. Um, so that's when I really started thinking about writing a longer book. And um, it is hard work. Yeah. I, Are you very disciplined? Not really. I mean, I am, to be honest, but I work, I had to be really, I've learned so much since like, I got this deal because I had the book ready, then I had to edit it and copy edit it, and there were changes to it. And then that was published. And then less than a year later, I had to produce another book, a second book. So another bit of advice I would give to writers out there is if you have a book deal, you start writing your second book when you're editing your first one. Oh, because man. That's I know, puts everyone off. <laughs> it is hard work. And and um, I when people say, and I have respect for every writer, I love sharing knowledge. And if I can do anything to help someone else speed up their process and and be successful and find their voice, I will. But I think it means up giving a lot of sunny Sundays. You know, it means I would get up at six in the morning. I'd work, I'd work till two or three in the morning. And it was hard work, but I learned a lot from, so moving from the kind of amateur writer into the professional realm is a huge step. Did you drink a lot of uh, champagne at that point when you won that? No, really, I, actually no. my, my friend, my really good friend, Sue, who lives in London, sent me some champagne and it didn't arrive. And she said, oh, she said, I've sent it to the wrong house. So I went over to the house down the road and, and the couple had it and they'd opened it. They'd opened <laughs> the box and they had the champagne. And I said, oh, thanks. And he said, oh, congratulations on the book. He read the card as well. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, where's my champagne? <laughs> he was lovely he was lovely but I was like he read the card as well um how much did they drink of it no they didn't drink any of it they'd oh, had it um but they you know when these the delivery places say if you put the wrong address it's your responsibility so they said oh just just drink it but it was so funny it's lovely though <laughs> but it's I don't know if you've had a chance we're a bit of a um not gory we're more rude than anything ben and i oh, and he sends his apologies he's currently on his way to stoke oh that sounds depressing but um... <laughs> yeah <laughs> i thought it's bad enough without me telling him off yeah, I, I, told... I did have this is it's real i talk about synchronistic i saw mm. one of your 
podcast, I had a quick look. And one of the themes I won't say now, but is is something that I'm working on. It links to a book I'm working on with a, a friend from my MA. We're doing a book, collaborating on a book. Do you know what's quite interesting about this? And not that I know anything about what you do, but the, the themes of crime often overlap and we're often referencing different and connecting different crimes. And I'll say, actually, an MO is, is a massive word yeah. in this. So I'm currently working on my third novel, which is the novel I actually um, drafted as part of my MA called Vengeance Street. And it's about a probation officer who works with, so I worked with kind of, you know, high risk ex-offenders, sex offenders. So it's that question about how do professionals deal with some of the most complex people and potentially the vilified people and still kind of retain their, and they did retain their humanity. They still had compassion when they were professional, but they still have their own feelings. So it's really, you know, did you, but are you allowed to say that you would meet some of the people and think, well, yeah, okay, I, I feel that those crimes that that person did because of how they are, but some of them really grim. Um, <laughs> I would say speaking to other professionals, experienced, so I, I'm not huge, you know, I, I couldn't say I'm a, a you know really experienced but we're working with others in the criminal justice system who would say some and not all because I absolutely believe in rehabilitation and restorative justice but there are some that are hardwired that way yeah, yeah. and was that was part of that your motivation I mean I don't really know the date sequence did everything evolve together um so I wrote The Lake. The Lake was started, it was actually inspired by a story I read um, not long after the Stephen Lawrence case when another youth was murdered and um, racially motivated and the mother said she was a Christian and she said, I forgive them. And I just had such mm -hmm. admiration yes. for this person. I always I, feel a pang when I read that. You know, and I think you're amazing. Of course, she has to live. so. Um, but I mm. thought I wouldn't be able to do that, you know. Mm. So what about the woman who couldn't? So 2020 was the lake right in the middle of the pandemic. And then 2021 was my husband's secret. I guess that's your sort of everybody knows you for that. Is that what people talk to you know. about most? It's interesting because the lake to me was more from my heart because it was about loss and grief and about what interests me is why good people do bad things. So in the lake, it's a mother whose son has died. And a few years later, she begins to believe it wasn't an accident. And she kind of becomes morally corrupted by her desire for the truth. And my husband's secrets was, it started off as um, a short story about, you know, just how people, what people do to each other and how you become not yourself because of anger or, jealousy this is why a lot of particularly women come to true crime i don't know how much you know about the world of podcasts and true crime i love serial i'm really getting into true crime podcasts now i have a real bit of um of a a kind of penchant for the sort of gentle horror true crime like the sort of um uncanny you know they're really <laughs> not too frightening 
Oh, I like more frightening as I as the years increase. I'm the opposite. I used to maybe having kids. I mean, when I'm my kids were teenagers, they're grown up now. I used to have to go upstairs in the dining room when they all watched Insidious and everything. You know, I couldn't. couldn't, um... It's interesting, isn't it? It's, It's I wonder if it's loosely connected to what we've just been talking about, that things have a different effect and I, I find myself kind of feeling really emotional at something really weird. And then other times I'll be sort of listening, especially as you become a bit immune. When you hear so many ghastly things, I think, uh, yeah, you, you listen to it. I, I think if you're working in it, you, I mean, the first time I went into a homeless hostel, I was absolutely scared, terrified. Yes. And the fourth time I think, but they're just all people, you know? And I think, when you, mm. you know, your work, if you're investigating and commenting on crime, you just, I think you have to kind of compartmentalize it a little bit just to be able to do what you do. But I always think, I remember Val McDermott saying, why women like true crime? And she said, from the moment you're really old enough to be conscious, someone's telling you to be careful, be afraid, oh. look behind you, you know, um, watch out, don't walk on your own, don't wear a short skirt, you know, and you think about, I certainly do, even now, put your keys between your fingers, like behind you. So you're indoctrinated women from an early age, potentially you could say men too, because it's not always a safe place for men out there, but you're indoctrinated from an early age to be frightened. And so it's something we understand and we write about. Mm. I did a, so I work at an arts university and I um, I'm a great careers advisor, but I teach as well. And I taught, I was doing some stuff on screenwriting for film students. And I talked about, um, so I grew up in a kind of violent household. So I talked about, I'm not, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I understand threat implicitly. I know what fear is like and what threat feels like. So that's what I write about. Is that, is it very naff to say that then you you are fairly used to living in a state of sort of emergency and... and... Well, not so much as I get older because I've kind of worked on it, but any okay. any person that grows up in an unsafe environment, whether it's violent or children of alcoholics, typically will have what they call hypervigilance. So that ability always to read the room, to see that tiny shift in behavior, to kind of be that person that pacifies everybody. Um, And I think that's what interests me as well. So that's, I like those situations that are always teetering on the edge of, of kind of falling into danger. And, and do you think, because the other thing that women typically say who, who enjoy true crime, whether it be podcasts or, or books, um, they say that they're trying to sort of work something out in themselves. They're trying to understand people. They're trying to understand their place in the world. Do you, do you have any feeling like that? I, I personally, I, I think it's fascinating. And I, and I, I know they think about the Dahmer thing on Netflix, how successful that was. I think it's a natural human curiosity to understand the kind of abject and the, you know, the absolute kind of contradiction of what society expects, societal norms, because it's really other. We don't want to live it, but we are curious about it. 
And I think, I don't think people should be condemned for being curious because it's something that I suppose could educate us. Uh, I know people can say it's voyeuristic, but it happened. So uh, I'm I'm reading um, the panic years. When I say reading, I've got a six year old. So I think you remember <laughs> that time. Um, and she says that she allows herself to say outlandish things and she was she's constantly she's talking about the the time which is i don't know if you know of her she's um, no. she's quite a, a, uh, outspoken on social media as well and she says you know i would think my she had a little boy and you know I, she would say to people what happens if i smash his head against the wall you know where do i where am i going to be and she said it's a part of being a normal person absolutely to, to go through that and to say that she said if she didn't say it she would be in trouble and i've massively paraphrased her so got it i think wrong. a lot of people have those it's it's i think if you have a vivid imagination um it's that thing like where i i'm i'm don't, not great with heights so i can imagine myself jumping off a bridge i don't want to jump off a bridge but I can imagine it because, you know, it's like that worst scenario. But I mean, if you're interested in why people do an abject is a word, you know, abject is like something that is is against society, is it against um, what we think of as a norm? If you're interested in that, then you can't help going there. I remember my husband and I driving to Salisbury. Um, it was rainy night and we came through a roundabout and I looked over and there was like a, it was like a, a waste ground and it looked like it had been an old petrol station and it had been dug up and there was fencing all over the place and diggers and I looked over and I said, that'd be a good place to hide a body. And he just said, weirdo. Um, but, <laughs> Isn't he know, used to you by now? Yeah. <laughs> And um, my were you kids, looking suggestively at him? Well, yeah, you better watch yourself, <laughs> mate. But I mean, honestly, I I remember emailing a professor of chemistry at University of Plymouth um, when I was thinking. I thought of this idea about someone who's a, a forager and she distills poison mushrooms and kills a bit Agatha Christie. And I emailed him and I said, oh, you know, could you do this? And how do you distill it? And he came back with the chemical formula. And how much it would take to kill a man, you know? So, Cheers. So yeah. <laughs> so well, I do... we we constantly say on this, are we really going to be outing ourselves? Because the, the premise for this podcast was at the beginning of lockdown that we just sort of passed it old hacks who who you know had nothing better to do, but that we were thinking about people wanting to get rid of each other and how they could best <laughs> do it. Oh my God, and you're stuck in the same house for so long. Yes, and I think I remember a phrase that Ben used. He said, uh, somebody blinks too loudly, and I keep thinking it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And after I've been, I've been married 30 years, so you know, after 30 well years. <laughs> Yeah, um, but the thing is, you've so outed your, you know, you, you're going to have to get someone else to do it. <laughs> it's true. This is true. I, that when I was doing my MA, we did, so I did my MA at University of East Anglia in crime writing, and we had actually got to go to the morgue. And did we you? Got, yeah, we actually got to. Can you do speak. that kind of thing? Are you okay Well, it was that? well managed, you know, it was, it was properly managed. So we, okay. we didn't see bodies and things, and we spoke to the pathologist. And the professor of chemistry 
said the best way to kill someone should i say this yes this is actually we do ask our guests to and because ben's not here he could have reminded me um your your favorite body disposal well he said the best way to kill someone is insulin because it disperses within 24 hours and i met uh, a woman who's a crime scene investigator interesting my husband and I did an archery class I thought how middle class is that and um, <laughs> I asked her because whenever whenever I meet anybody like that I was like oh oh can I have your email address <laughs> and I asked her about it and she said oh yeah she said but you'd have to hide the needle mark maybe in the belly button oh, so, it's a bit awkward <laughs> well someone I suppose would have to be unconscious or something you'd have to but, be playing twister but I'm just planning my so one two three i'm on my third book which i'm just editing editing slightly for my so agent is the research for that so what the um, research with the chemistry professor i was, never i never for? wrote the story i mean oh. come on how boring is it someone poisons someone with poison mushrooms i just thought that but oh. it's all, it all adds up or what they did on those mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I've never taken them. They sound a bit too no. crazy. No, me. No. Um, oh, I thought I'm... I could get an exclusive there. No, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe off recording, I might tell you some stories. Oh, no. Okay. I'm not allowed to leave it running, but that's always the best time. I know. <laughs> There was one thing, one thing I wanted to have with my with my husband's secrets where the first ending I wanted was where it kind of is a lot of flashback and the, the woman's husband, there's a car accident and you think he he he's dead. And then there's a recording device in the car and I had the stepdaughter. There's a bit of metal sticking up from the accident. She pushes her stepfather into but my editors didn't want because I write. I was writing for commercial fiction, oh. so I like to go quite dark. Oh. We like if, that too. If you're gonna go, yes. if you're gonna write crime, you know, I just think, and in my, I haven't got a title for it yet. So one, two, three. So there's a book I'm writing with my friend Bob, which is gonna be really cool. Working on a screenplay, and the book after that, set in North Wales. All I'm gonna say is a bolt gun is involved. And I asked my son about oh, that. Tell me what that is. That's where they, you know, those those guns they use to kill livestock. Oh, um, oh, because I was thinking crossbow for some reason. No, well, I could. That's not bad either. <laughs> what a hassle! Seriously, it's not something you can pack so, light. <laughs> yeah, so I really don't think there's anything wrong. I think it's a bit like people going to see horror films. It's a way to explore our fears in a safe environment. You know, true crime podcasts, you can hear about the kind of darker side of where people go, but you, you're you in, in your safe place listening to that. I think it helps you understand yourself, the world. Um, and I don't have any issues with that. I think it's part of, for women, maybe, yeah. Do, I don't know, do you feel safer? Do you really, I mean, if, of a flipping cop can kill a woman mm. or any of us safe so yeah um and then if you read that once it's just as likely it's more likely to disturb you if you've not got any kind of resilience 
but maybe it's a I'm safe guessing. way it's a safe way to, to kind of stretch those muscles without yeah. getting too far involved in it are we just um, justifying being dark individuals it's a really good question isn't it and i i'm interested in like psychopathy i suppose Mm. Uh, what, make, what makes people, you know, the nature nurture thing? One of my favorite books is Frankenstein. Uh, and, you know, what makes the monster? Was he a monster or was he made? And, and I, th I think about the Bulger case, those two kids who came from really difficult backgrounds. And it's like they said, if they hadn't met, that wouldn't have happened. And so it was like a congruence of the most unfortunate events. And I, you know, that's not something I would ever want to glorify because it was too tragic. But just think if these people hadn't come together, it wouldn't mm. happen. So mm. it's just strange, isn't it? What mm. makes, you know, all those those series about what make, making of a murder and all mm. that stuff. But I think it's also what I find surprising in many of these, the psychopaths particularly, is that Ben and I have met court reporting. And if you see somebody in the dock, wherever you're, you are at the Old Bailey or one of the big courts, they're often really unlikely individuals. The weakness that sometimes comes across from people who have had such control of it. And, and I wonder if that's an element in it. Well, I think, particularly with crimes against women, and I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I really want to qualify this. Um, but some of them that you see is to do with control or to do with a sense of inadequacy. Um, so potentially they live out those fantasies through violence, but how they get there. You know, I always remember when my kids were young and, you know, with a six-year-old, you'll get this. My, my husband said, gosh, there's times when I could have thrown our kids out the window because I was so, you know, they were so annoying, but I would never have done it. So what makes someone actually injure an innocent person? You know, what is the trigger that takes people beyond the realm of normal behavior? And I suspect it's a combination of, you know, trauma, abuse, something to do. They talk a lot about um, when children don't emotionally, you know, attachment issues and things like that. And I think people that are raised in a really difficult environment may be predispositioned to that. But again, I'm not a psychologist. Well, there are also many who aren't, yeah. you know, who break the cycle. But something interested me, what you said about seeing possibility of rehabilitation in people. Do you believe that with sex offenders? Um, that's kind of one of the main themes of the book. And it's a one of the main themes i leave it as an open question oh, um, well when i worked with people in sex offenders register part of what you do is you, you try not to judge you have your own feelings but you have a job to do for me the most important thing and when i worked with probation and police um as one of the things that inspired the book was that their compassion even when they're dealing with people that do really awful things was to get them in a place where they're regulated safe working or in an environment maybe in a community group or a church group means they're less likely to re-offend because they're not um they're not in a high stress so the probation officer i worked with this you, you like this one uh 
one of the things you have to do with sex offenders to determine their level of sexual preoccupation. And if they would be, if it heightens, then they're potentially at risk, is you'd have to ask them how many times a day they masturbate. And if they would have to, if they masturbated to an appropriate sexual fantasy. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a question. Yeah. And, <laughs> if they, and in fact, in my book, at Vengeance Street, I actually have the probation officer asking because if things change and they think, right, this person's potentially a risk. So uh, I hesitate to really make a comment on it because I don't feel like I'm expert enough, but I think it is a really complex issue. How do we deal with the unfixable people in our society? I guess that's how I'd answer that question. We have to, we can't kill them. We can't castrate them. Mm. We have to find a way to deal with it appropriately to protect people and compassionately but we also have to think about the victims um so i don't think it's an easy question to answer no i am in two minds about it i I, don't know i've worked with people that i felt generally were and were working hard to get there so i think there's a possibility but i am conscious of the impact on the victims so I think it's also and that that question was slightly slanted towards um, offences against children. I think that that has a slightly lesser success rate of rehabilitation, um, because I think that the, the patterns that tend to be involved in that are a lot of the way that you've experienced treatment from adults to children. So it yeah. becomes a groove of, of habit. Wow, fascinating. And what an amazing career change from housewife to crime writer. Anyway, um, I'm hoping I can be back properly uh, next time. (laughs) This is me recorded, just saying thanks very much for listening and thank to uh, Victoria for doing all the hard work, as ever, on this episode. In fact, she does all the hard work on all the episodes, grudging as I am to admit it. Um, So maybe if you think you want to reward her, you could... uh, buy her a coffee at buy me a coffee stroke wide lmf or you can email us or you can tweet us on twitter and all the usual and thanks for listening bye